Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gideon Rose joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the editor of Foreign Affairs and the Peter G. Peterson Chair at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I hold uh, Gideon's Bible here, uh, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, entitled What Now? Trump's uh, Next Steps. And let's let's take stock here now four or five months into the, the presidency. Do we have a, a clearer sense of what Trump's uh, foreign policy uh, prescription is, what his, what his foreign policy uh, is, Gideon? Actually, no, I don't think we do. Um, he came to, into office with a very strong agenda with a lot of uh, – both contradictory but also somewhat radical proposals. And what has been notable has been backing off of many of those, but not all of them, but not putting in its place any kind of new framework that uh, explains and justifies which parts of the campaign agenda he's kept and which parts he hasn't. So right now, basically, you just have a sort of mostly an inertial mishmash uh, that is continuing uh, on autopilot for general American foreign policy with occasional reactions coming out of D.C. on particular events and issues. Gideon, let me ask you what we learned from, from the speech that the president gave uh, in Brussels when he was there for the NATO summit. Since then, Susan Glasser, who's at Politico magazine, has written about how uh, I think 25 words were stricken from uh, the speech that he ended up reading. Those were the ones in which he would have affirmed uh, the, the importance of Article 5, part of, of NATO. What do we learn from that uh, that speech in Brussels and what happened? I think we learned a couple of things. Uh, one is that the president really doesn't like NATO. Second, that uh, the responsible, quote-unquote, adults in the administration don't necessarily get their way when it comes to the president's words. Whether it comes to actual policies is a different question. And so one of the interesting things that happens – I mean, th think about the question of the president's tweets. Mm. Uh, and everyone's debating, are the president's tweets official reflections of U.S. policy? Increasingly, the president's tweets, everybody seems to agree, are the president's tweets and not actual reflections of U.S. policy. So figuring out at this point when the president is speaking as Donald J. Trump and when he's speaking as the authoritative commander-in-chief of U.S. forces and uh, uh, the expression of U.S. foreign policy is a really kind of – odd. Uh, we don't know. So people are, I would say, uh, foreigners and most people should watch what the United States does and not listen to any of the words coming out of Washington because it's not clear who at these these days is authoritatively speaking for the country. Kenyon Rose, there are teeing things up perfectly for me to read the latest tweet from the president now just a few minutes ago, uh, writing, well, as predicted, the Ninth Circuit did it again, ruled against the travel ban at such a dangerous time in the history of our country. S. C, which stands for Supreme Court, I assume. Where do things stand with this Could travel? Be South Carolina. Should be South Carolina on the Clemson heels of yesterday. greeting Clemson at the White House. No, Indeed, our not? national champions uh, there on the South Lawn of, of, of the White House. Uh, Gideon, uh, what, what, what changes now that we have this Ninth Circuit decision? How much closer are we to seeing this case being argued before the Supreme Court? You know, 
you have to get a legal expert to talk about the specifics of the thing. The, the fact is this whole thing is a bit of a joke in the sense that there wasn't actually a real problem. The solution was a fake solution, and it was driven by an agenda other than rational policymaking, which is why it has been undermined in the courts. So uh, what really should happen is they should get – and the entire point of this was supposedly a temporary ban of which the period now is almost over, and there was no actual real problem with vetting in the first place. So it, it's not clear to me that – uh, other than politics and stubbornness, that there's any reason for this to go any further whatsoever. The question of immigration policy and protecting yourself from counterterrorism uh, threats is a real, and, and terrorist threats is a real and major issue. But the idea that that's actually what's yeah. going on in this discussion okay. about the travel ban is silly. You've been complaining all morning. What do you want from Secretary <laughs> Tillerson? Secretary Tillerson is a very interesting character. I mean, he's going to go to CFR, Council of Foreign Relations. So no, Ambassador Haas is going to greet him. You're going to do a foreign affairs interview. We'd what do you to. want? We, for... we would love to interview. We, we have standing uh, offers sure. to, to interview tons of people. We would love to. So, What's no, your first question? You know, it's really hard to... Uh, what, is, okay, what is the grand strategy of the Trump administration? Now, I don't think he'd answer that. Uh, Tillerson has not exactly been a large public voice in American foreign mm -hmm. policy recently. Um, the, what I've heard, however, is that indeed he has been working closely with Mattis and, uh, uh, and McMaster uh, to, to help uh, guide things in ways that, uh, that people at state yeah. would feel are, are responsible and which we should be very thankful for. So uh, I, I, the, the question of what is actually going on inside the Trump foreign policy and national security apparatus is a very interesting question that, that for all the reporting mm. that goes on about the White House itself and the soap opera and the melodrama of all the key characters, there's very little reportage about the details of foreign policy making and how decisions and strategic process actually play out. There's a, you know, a really fascinating piece in New York Magazine this week by Jessica Pressler looking at Gary Cohn, the chairman of the National Economic Council, and, and she sort of looks at him as a longstanding number two. He was the number two to, to Lloyd Blankfein uh, at Goldman Sachs and sort of what the piece posits is why is he putting up with, with all of this? And I wonder if you can extrapolate that to, to Rex Tillerson as well. I'm reminded of the, the statement that he gave on Friday about Qatar that was immediately reversed by the president uh, in the Rose Garden at a press conference shortly thereafter. Does this president want his cabinet secretaries to have any degree of autonomy, do you think? Uh, the answer to that last question probably is no. I mean, if we all we all watched that meeting yesterday, and it doesn't look like this is somebody a boss who wants to have a lot of delegated authority to freelancing underlings who are peer players. This is more like a court than it is a, a cabinet. Um, with regard to what Tillerson's thinking, I, I don't know. I can't get inside Tillerson's head. I, I don't know the man, and it's not clear what the mindset he's bringing to diplomacy is after an entire career spent in corporate management. What Tillerson, sorry, what McMaster, the generals uh, McMaster and uh, <coughs> Mattis uh, are thinking and what many of the professionals around are thinking is, look, the United States is the leader of the world. Mm -hmm. We are running uh, a very important <laughs> set of policies uh, globally on a whole bunch of areas, and we need to keep the ship on track. And they're basically spending their right. time trying to run the world and doing a, a decent well, job of it. Anthony from New Jersey emailed in, and he said, you know, very succinctly, What's going to happen next? We had Ambassador Burns with us yesterday, Nicholas Burns of Kennedy, uh, in here. Those guys aren't in a Republican government. Maybe guys like Haas, guys like uh, Ambassador Burns and such. What needs to happen to get the normal apparatus of our Republican foreign policy into the Republican Senate, Republican House, Republican White House? That's what Anthony from New Jersey wanted to know. 
I think that is a great question. It, well, I didn't New come Jersey. up with it. Anthony from New Jersey came uh, I, up I with think, it. I think the, that is the kind of question that many of us are asking. Um, the It's easier to ask the question than to answer it um, because what we've seen increasingly is that everything we thought we knew about U.S. foreign policy and uh, government operations – does not seem to apply in the short term, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that will be true over a medium term or longer term, I cannot see how this right. is sustainable. I cannot see how what we've seen over the last few months goes on for too much longer, many more months right. longer, without some... We've been okay. so incredibly lucky that there's been no actual crisis abroad. Um, we've essentially been stalled in the water. U.S. foreign policy is stalled in the water. Um, Nothing bad has happened. No pirates have come along right. to attack us. No, yeah. uh, no giant whale has come to rock the boat. Uh, you didn't see the new Johnny Depp movie. <laughs> what will actually happen? Yeah. You know, every month that goes by, we're yeah. running out of time when we can expect our luck to hold okay. with no crises. I want to come back and talk about the new Foreign Affairs magazine. It is, is always controversial and very balanced. There's some different views across it. What now? The president's next steps. Gideon Rose with this Foreign Affairs magazine, the new issue. What now? Trump's next steps. How do you make an issue? Is it like is it like a war? Is it like, you know, the the the, the bunker room there at the White House? It's like six of you get in a room and scream at each other for I two days. I want the days? Tom Keen grand strategy. When do we get that piece? <laughs> so we have two. We have two uh, two tracks. We have a daily website where we uh, put out several pieces a day, and that's yeah. a constant production of stuff that's like a lot of other uh, organizations trying to add real value to contemporary commentary on breaking mm -hmm. events. We also have a bi-monthly print issue, which is sort of like the carriers of the battle fleet and the sort of you, you deploy them on long deployments on major subjects. What we try and do is have a steady run of articles on regular important big topics, but we also have a lead package each issue, and we try to shape that a couple of months out to, yeah. to what we think will be on the news of the day. And so when we were putting this one together, we were putting it together in April, sending it to bed in May to appear in June and July. Yeah, the idea tough. was that, okay, after all the craziness of the first few months- It'll get calmer. It's going to get calmer, so let's talk about actual <laughs> policy stuff, right? So we had suggestions for foreign policy, suggestions for yeah. healthcare reform, suggestions for <clears throat> tax reform, projection for economic and policy internationally. The idea being that at some point, there are some people who should go about trying to govern. Um, whether that is actually in sync with what's happening in D.C., you never know. But okay. those discussions should you, be had no matter what. You mentioned carriers and battleships. Right now they're off North Korea. Admiral Stavridis told us from Fletcher, uh, one of your sponsors in Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, the idea of there's an armada off of North Korea. What is the foreign affairs take on our risks in North Korea? So uh, – North Korea, look, as General Mattis said just the other day, that's the sort of probably the single most important or urgent immediate uh, national security threat uh, that people are focusing on, even more so than Russia and cyber stuff. Uh, it's dangerous. On the other hand, it's always kind of been dangerous. We've been having a yeah. Korea standoff for 60 years, so I'm not as freaked as other people are. But that doesn't mean you don't have to handle this very carefully and very securely. Probably the thing to do that makes sense is not, and this is something that Richard Haas says in his piece, is not assume that you can solve the North Korea problem. We're not going to solve the North Korea problem. So what you should be looking for is not some fundamental resolution to the issue, but some sort of interim agreement that can pause things, keep them from escalating further, and jolly things along and kick the can down the road. We've been doing that with North Korea for six decades. Nobody has any 
better ideas. We should keep doing it now. And you want responsible adults managing that to make sure that it doesn't actually erupt or escalate into a giant war. Yeah, that's a big part of uh, Ambassador Haas's piece, Where to Go From Here, Rebooting American Foreign Policy at the front of uh, the latest issue of, of Foreign Affairs. Let me ask you about uh, Russian hacking. You mentioned that just a moment ago. Bloomberg News uh, reporting this morning. Uh, that uh, the hacking during the election, much wider than was initially thought, uh, hackers hit systems in a total of 39 uh, states here. This is uh, ostensibly the focus of the Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, investigation. And we heard from James Comey on this subject last week. Are, are we at risk of, of, of not seeing the forest through the trees, uh, focusing too much here on the, the interpersonal conflict uh, and not on this larger issue? Are we at risk of losing sight of the larger issue here, that being um, the, the cyber attacks that Russia made during the, during the campaign? I think you're absolutely correct. Um, so essentially, there's a bunch of different issues here, all of which are worth talking about, investigating, discussing, addressing, and so forth, but which can and should follow separate tracks. So whatever happened on the legal front uh, or, or the, whatever's going on on the investigative front, that's, issue, that's one set of issues. Whatever happened between the Trump campaign and Russia is another issue. But what the Russians did and are continuing to do and they, what they have, they've done in other countries as well is use cyber attacks and uh, as part of a broader diplomatic uh, and economic and uh, political strategy uh, for uh, challenging American dominance and and overturning uh, uh, various American policies they don't like. And so the this should be a major object of investigation and a major uh, challenge to deal with no matter who's in the White House. And the fact that this has gotten somehow tied up in and connected to the partisan split going on in Washington in which it shouldn't matter what party affiliation you have to determine what your stance should be on a Russian cyber attack against American democracy. And yet, unfortunately, it seems to be getting trapped in that as if the people who care about the Russia leaks and the Russia investigation uh, are seemingly uh, doing it for partisan reasons and the people on the other side are opposing them. Thank you so much for coming in. Always hugely valuable. Absolutely, yeah. uh, Gideon, this, you know, this is what the show's about. We do economics and the Fed and finance and investment, and we have to link it into the politics I'm of the moment. Is uh, Well, Gideon Rose, thank you so much. Foreign Affairs Magazine, what now? Trump's next steps. advantaged. Um, Bloomberg's doing a big deal in Germany today. We've got a lot of German news coming out, including uh, important comments by their finance minister. It would be good to have a German expert in the House. That would not be John Tucker or Tom oh, Keene or David Gura. Nine. 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 <laughs> Karsten Brzezinski with us with ING Germany, uh, usually in Frankfurt. It's Frankfurt, right? It's Frankfurt. You're not in Berlin. Yeah, Frankfurt. Like Frankfurt. Frank. Berlin-born, Berlin-born, and now living in Frankfurt. Good. Wonderful yeah. to have you here. Let's start with something we usually don't ask, but I'm going to ask it. Who's Mr. Schäuble? How is Mr. Schäuble, the finance minister, perceived by the German people? A bit like Mr. Bismarck uh, back 100, 120 years ago. I think he's the, the iron, he's not the iron lady, he's the iron man. Uh-huh. And uh, standing for uh, f- fiscal discipline and uh, what, what the Germans call the, bla- the black zero, so more or less balanced budgets. What, what did you hear last week? We were, we were paying attention to, uh, to what Mario Draghi was saying uh, in Estonia uh, after the, uh, the rate decision last week. What changed in terms of language last week? What stood out to you? 
Well, obviously, we are the, the ones on uh, they, they they cut down the, the easing bias, so no, no lo- interest rates will no longer could no longer be even lower than it is, and also the expected thing that uh, the Draghi changed the the balance of the economic outlook to to balanced. Um, I think that that was the new thing as, as expected. Now the next steps will be: will he gradually prepare a tapering announcement? Well, we're talking about personality here. What, what's the, the the relationship like between Mr. Schäuble and, and uh, Mr. Draghi? Is there much of one? I uh, wonder whether there is. I would call this a professional relationship, because okay. <laughs> um, Mr. As, as, as you know, Mr. Schäuble li- likes to to do some some ECB bashing once in a while yeah. out out in public. Um, clearly, the ECB does not like it um, because the German public is very critical about the ECB. Um, so I think it's a professional relationship, but I wonder whether it goes beyond that. Dovetail for us, if you would, uh, what's going on with the ECB and what we expect to see the, the, the Fed do today. How cognizant is the, the ECB of what the Fed is, is doing or may do uh, today and tomorrow? I think what well, wasn't it uh, Trichet, the uh, the former ECB president, who always talked about some some mutual brotherhood of of central bankers? Um, obviously, they are watching what what the Fed is doing and and the impact on the currency. I think that that is what what's most interesting. Because um, if the Fed would not uh, hike interest rates, if and if the ECB would continue going towards tapering, this argues in favor of a stronger euro. But for the ECB, the euro should not get too strong because otherwise it would undermine exports. Uh, we have a, a deadline coming up here for, for Greece on Friday, I gather, another meeting on, on, on Friday. Uh, have we seen Mr. Schäuble soften his tone at all when it comes to the situation uh, in Greece? Has, has that story changed markedly? No, it has not. Uh, uh-huh. the, the, the only change is that hardly anyone is interested in what, what Schäuble thinks about, about the Greek because um, it, it will be muddling through. Because uh, I think we, we know that no one really is interested in an escalation of the situation. Neither the Germans, uh, a couple of months uh, before their own elections, nor the Greek. Um, so therefore, we will get some muddling through and this will more or less go uh, off the radar screen. Tom mentioned he's watching the the, the U.S. two-year. What what are you watching mostly these days? What what are the indicators that you pay the most attention to as we have these ECB meetings and the Fed meeting, the BOJ meeting on the heels of the Fed meeting later this week? Obviously, it is bond yields. It's it's ten year. It's it's two year uh, rates, and, and it's a, it's a bit of the exchange rate. And I think, especially when you look at the the U.S. situation, it's also overshadowed by politics. Mm-hmm. When when I look at this, and I did this chart the other day, not only is there a yield divergence between the negative two year uh, in Germany and the U.S. two year, but the first derivative, the widening divergence, is tangible. That's always asymmetric. Is the divergence widening a bigger deal for the United States or is it a bigger deal for Germany? It's a, it's a, it's a bigger deal for the for the U.S. because it are, always argues in favor of, of a strong of a stronger U.S. dollar. Um, but let's not forget it, it's also distorted by by, by the fact that uh, you have so many institutional investors uh, who actually have to invest in short uh, short maturity German paper. And this and, is and not just the ECB. It's There's not only the ECB. Explain that. Because because banks actually they they could deposit the liquidity at the ECB at minus 0.4, but if you look at where where one year or two year um, German bond yields stand, that these are far lower, which means you have institutional investors which cannot dump their liquidity at the ECB. They have to buy. They, they are they are forced to buy German paper, and this <clears> is what what distorts the market. How you can't tell me that is functional for the people of Germany. We talked to you know Bill Gross of Janus. Um, Henderson about this, about the financial repression. What is the financial repression of one third of Germany who are savers? Um, there, it, it's a huge one um, because if, if if you are a saver, you don't get any 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 interest rates any longer on your saving accounts. Um, it's called German- you can't eat. 
Exactly. Oh, well, they're, they're, they're still have enough to eat, um, but maybe they, they won't have enough to eat in, in 20 or 30 years from now. Plus, mm. the same is if you, when you look at the, the pension system in Germany, it's pay as you go. So it's also dependent on, on, the, on the current interest rate. So it's, it's not, not a stock What's market. The, uh, this is an unfair question, but it's unfair Tuesday, right? Yeah. Okay. What's the actuarial assumption of a German pension plan? Here it was 8%, and maybe it's 6%. For Illinois, we don't even know. They're blowing up. <laughs> Uh, thanks to Bank of America and Zero Hedge for a great article on I, that. I, I, I what's, think, what's the actual assumption of a German pension plan? I, I, I think, on, honestly, I think it's around 4%. So Four. It's not as optimistic wow. as Illinois, but it's uh, between 3 and 4%. Wow. I've never heard that, yes. David. What that means, <laughs> CFA level 7. Yes, Wait, down. there's Larry the cat. Okay. We, have a, we have wired in here all sorts of videos, and we just have a cat sighting. <laughs> that is like the white smoke outside the chimney. The prime minister will make it. Okay. He looks like he's about to catch something. Back, back on this. This nervous. is really, David, this is important because the lower the actual, Taylor Riggs told me this. Yeah. The lower the actuarial assumption, the more cash you have to impute into your pension yeah. system. So Germany's got to put trillions, trillions, I say, into their system. Is that happening? Um, it, it's not happening. What, what, what are people doing? People are investing in uh, in, in bricks and mortar. Mm. So they're, they're, this is this is why we have this construction housing boom in Germany because because people do invest in housing. Whether it's the best investment for for the future remains to be seen. Um, but of of course, you're fully right. Normally, you you would have you would expect um, that, that people put in more cash. It's not happening. I think I looked at the numbers. It's only two to three percent of the people actually say that they do this. We focused on how the relationship between Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, what that means for France. What does it mean for for Germany? Are we are we seeing a, a new political dawn in Germany as well as a result of that relationship? Is 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 the is the European project looking different now in light of the Macron victory from from a uh, from a German perspective? I, I think it is. Uh, probably a lot will also depend on whether or not Mr. Schäuble will return in, in, in the next German government, because um, probably he's the one standing most on the brakes, uh, much more than Mrs. Merkel. Um, the entire, I think, G German media and public embraced Mr. Macron when, when, when he came in. Um, I don't know whether they really know what they're embracing, because uh, if, you, if you ask the, the German majority, they would say, yes, we are in favor of more European integration. If you ask them, are you in favor of, of, uh, of a common euro bond, of, of a eurozone finance minister, of a eurozone budget, they would probably say no. Um, so therefore, the, 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 the sentiment right now is very positive, and they are embracing Macron. Um, but I think it will remain, we need more changes um, to really see what, what is needed and that the Germans accept that they have to give away something. I'll ask you lastly about the comments that President Trump made while he was uh, in Europe, uh, perhaps a little bit lost in, in translation, talking about trade deficits when it comes to German automakers uh, in, in the U.S., tariffs in the, in the U.S. How, how, how big a deal is that uh, in Germany, what he had to say about BMW, Mercedes, all of these companies that, yes, manufacture cars uh, and sell cars here in the U.S.? In, in Germany, it is a big deal. Yeah. I think this is the, the biggest fear in, in the German industry, but also in German politics, that uh, there's one single thing on which Mr. Trump has been consistent over decades, and that is trade, and that is his, his criticism about uh, trade deficits. Um, so therefore, of course, the, the Germans have started to realize that, that factual arguments do not work. Um, even telling um, the, the U.S. administration that I think BM, BMW exports more cars um, from the U.S. to the outside world than, uh, than, than the two largest uh, American car manufacturers. That apparently is an argument which does not fall, uh, fall well with the uh, U.S. administration. Carson, great to see you. Thank you very much. Uh, Carson, Come back. There. Yes. Chief Economist at mm. ING Germany, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in yeah. New York.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Um, I really thought it was interesting uh, yesterday, uh, uh, David, when CNN lined up the cabinet meeting at the White House. And our next guest fared very well. <laughs> he did not, you know, kiss the president's ring or, or get to, he was really classy. And what was great about it was, I'm going to let you bring in our next guest, David, because you do a lot more politics than I do. But besides fixing Detroit Tiger middle relief pitching, which he's working on in his spare time, <laughs> our, our, our next guest had a lot of bad things said about him a while back. And he's taken the high road. There you go. Not many people do that in Washington. We have the uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. That's Dr. Ben Carson uh, joining us here in New York. What brings you to New York? Let me start there by asking you that question first. Uh, I was ringing the bell. At the New York Stock Exchange. At the New York Stock Exchange in celebration of National Homeowners uh, Month. Let me ask you, first of all, just about that, the, the importance of homeownership. We've been through the financial crisis. We've, we've seen a lot of people lose their homes. Uh, the notion of homeownership has, has changed. Sure. Uh, how do you see the importance of it today? Well, it is the primary mechanism whereby American families build wealth. The uh, average net worth of a homeowner in this country is $200,000, and of a renter, it's $5,000. So, hence, you can understand the push several mm. years ago for getting everybody into a home. But you're not doing anybody any favors if you put them in a home they can't afford. They lose their home, they lose their credit, they lose their future opportunities. So, we've, we've learned from those things, obviously. Um, and we have to teach people the correct me mechanism for home ownership. One of the things we're doing at HUD is loosening the restrictions on condominium mm -hmm. uh, financing. So that's frequently the first step into home ownership. And then teaching people the principles of building equity and moving to the next step rather than jumping too far ahead and then finding themselves in financial difficulty for the rest of their lives. What have you learned here uh, on these first few months on, on the job? There was speculation after the election that perhaps you'd be Surgeon General. You got this this position. Uh, it, it's all new, I imagine, being in a, a government bureaucracy like, like this one. What's most surprising to you uh, that you've learned here over these last few months? Well, you know, the, the, the principle of problem solving goes with you anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's always been uh, something I'd like to do is solve problems. Uh, so I'm getting ample opportunity to do that. But uh, also, a lot of people tell me that it would be extraordinarily difficult to get cooperation, uh, particularly from government workers who'd been around for a long time and that they were lazy and they didn't want to do any work. Uh, I'm not finding that to be the case. Uh, I'm finding that as long as you're engaged with them, they're a part of the process, everybody understands what the principles are, uh, no problem. I've been dealing with a lot of governors and, and mayors, you know, of both parties. It doesn't matter what the party is because the fact of the matter is what we're trying to do is, is not a partisan thing. You know, in terms of getting people into safety, decent, affordable mm -hmm. housing. That's not a Republican or a Democrat do you, thing. Do you have empty offices in, in your building? I mean, uh, are it, you getting your nominees through? What are you, what are you, are you screaming at the president? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there, there's been a combination of things that has resulted in uh, us not having... Uh, okay, I'll go with that. Of our what do you, come on, you're in surgery. Did you take Cy Schwartz? 
Did you do general surgery yes. textbook, Cy Schwartz, a million years ago? I did. Okay, I know. I grew up with Cy Schwartz. Wonderful guy. Cy Schwartz is principles of surgery, like 47 editions. You know in a surgeon's ward, you need a team of 20 people around you, right? Well, the, the good thing is we have a deep bench. So I'm able to get what I need while I'm searching for what I need. Because what I've really wanted to do is change HUD into a business model. So therefore we Good have with that. We, we we've hired we've hired a COO. We're uh, looking now uh, diligently for an excellent CFO. Oh Gura G U R S and a and a CIO so that we can tackle the, the material deficiencies in a holistic manner rather than just okay. a pinprick here and there. You you what's great about you doing this job is you lived it as a kid in Detroit. You you lived the aside of it. Where's the common ground between Ben Carson? and the Democrats in terms of getting us to a better housing stock within the country? Well, I, I hope the common ground is recognition of the fact that it's not just about putting people under a roof. It's about developing people. It's about giving people an opportunity to climb up that ladder because for every person that we can help do that, it makes room for another that we can help. But it doesn't help if we have people sort of sessile sitting there. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've got to have a continual movement going on here. If the, the president's budget proposal were to, to go through, if it were to become law, the HUD budget would be uh, smaller. Uh, I know that you've uh, you've criticized the Community Development Block Grant Program uh, as well, partially because – and the Obama administration did this too. It's hard to track results. How do we get better at doing that? Right. Uh, and I think that's that's maybe a critique, Tom, that's that's sort of a universal one. We need, we need to do a better job of seeing what's working and what's not. Uh, without question, we need better metrics. You, know, you, you look at CDBG. I, I said, you know, in my budget hearings that there have been some very excellent things that's happened to through that program, and particularly the fostering of public-private partnerships because the, the real money is not in the government. It's in the private sector. So you create win-win situations. I, I'm all for that and for those principles. Uh, but also we have to remember what our primary goals are, and those goals are providing affordable decent housing for people. Mm -hmm. So the CBDG program, 25% of the money goes to that purpose. That's not to say that the other things aren't good, but in a, in a situation of fiscal restraint, you have to prioritize. Right. Yesterday, a leading international relations expert, a former ambassador of this nation, sat in the chair you're sitting in, Ben Carson, and he is someone that would be perfect for any Republican administration. This is an administration based on loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. You're one of the few people that have been appointed by this administration where clearly that wasn't evident with the battle with you and the president during the campaign. What is the price of loyalty? What is the cost to Republicans into your administration with a litmus test of loyalty daily from this president? Well, you know, I, I think the whole loyalty argument has been blown out of proportion uh, because there's been so many leaks and so much backstabbing. I think it has been pushed to the forefront where it really doesn't need to be. But anybody that you're working with, you expect some degree of loyalty. Now, it depends on your definition of loyalty. You know, uh, to me, that does not include doing wrong things 
for a person mm-hmm. or ac- accepting well, things that are dishonest. That's to me is not loyalty. Don't be a stranger, Please, yeah. David. David, why don't you give our guests the appropriate accent? My toe hurts. <laughs> I want you to look at my toe yes, uh, when we're done. <laughs> Secretary Ben Carson, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, the Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios in New York. Here, as he said, uh, to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange uh, this morning. Great to see you here uh, in New York, and thanks for making the time uh, to talk with us today. Hope to talk to you again. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura and Tom Keen in New York, coast to coast, and worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Joining us now in Washington, he's retired, which I doubt because he's solving the problems of the Philadelphia Phillies on the side, is one Charles Plotzer, for years the president of the Philadelphia Fed, and of course his academics uh, noted, and particularly his work at the University of Rochester. Professor Plasser, wonderful to have you back in. What's the difference in retirement now? If you leave the grind of the Fed, are you better rested? I, I hope so, <laughs> yeah. because I wasn't always well rested at the Fed. But it's good to be with you, Tom. It's always it's well, always fun chatting with you. Let's get right to inflation. Many were worried about inflation. Their critics would call them inflationistas. The vector's migrating higher. It's particularly migrating higher in the United Kingdom. A little bit of a pause here into the set of meetings for the end of the year. Which way is the placer inflation vector right now? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge to forecast inflation. I think, as you well know, Tom, um, the models that policymakers tend to use have relied heavily on the Phillips curve as a means of generating a forecast of inflation. That hasn't really worked very well for the last, I don't know, 35 years. Um, so I, I do think that my own view is that inflation right now, I'm pretty happy with where it is. All the measures are clustering around 2%, give or take a few tenths. Um, so they all are signaling the same thing at this point. Uh, you don't want to react too much to sort of month-to-month uh, numbers, but uh, I think they're in pretty good place. Mm-hmm. I think that the, where it's going to end up remains a big question. Uh, people say, well, you guys who were against quantitative easing were worried about inflation, and I think the question uh, remains a the jury remains out in sort of how all this will end up. How much have we strayed from orthodox? And, and, and folks, to be clear here, uh, Professor Plasser is a recent Fed president, may not want to answer these questions, but we'll give it the college uh, try. <laughs> Charles Plasser, how far is... That's the nice thing about being retired. Yes, I know. Very good. How, how far at the Eccles building are they from orthodox economics? Oh, well, we, the Fed strayed pretty far during the crisis, perhaps for good reason, and we could that's a kind of a question for another day. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that um, they are further than I would like to see them because what I see is a Fed, partly perhaps because of the, because of the crisis, the Fed is now much more interventionist than it used to be, much more engaged in trying to manipulate asset prices of various kinds, interest rates of, on various maturities and asset classes. It's a very interventionist mentality at the Fed and has been ever since the crisis. And I'm worried that that interventionist mentality is not going to go away. And that's troubling to me. Do you, do you see it as an evolution? Are we, are we at a new place and we're going to continue in that direction or uh, amid the conversation about 
uh, who might populate the Fed next year, the year after that, uh, if we might get a more rules-based Fed. Do you see that as a, a return to a different kind of orthodoxy? Or are we, are, we, uh, are, we, are we going down a path that we're not going to turn back on? Well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know exactly. Certainly it will depend in part upon who the new appointments to the Board of Governors and to the presidents happen to be in terms of how they shape policy. Uh, and I think that uh, certainly I would like to see people who either drifted more towards systematic policy or rules-based policy, less interventionist Fed, because I think what we've done, what the Fed's done, is set itself up for all sorts of credibility problems, communication problems, and, 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 and expectations that they're just not going to be able to meet. So I'd like a little more humility at the Fed. Can I ask a quick question just about communication? <laughs> when the Fed chair would come out and, and do a press conference, uh, what, what were you doing at the time? How much attention do the, do the Fed presidents pay to, to that event uh, every other meeting? Um, I well, would we... never have asked that question, <laughs> Professor Blosser. <Blosser>. Continue. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I think usually it's the case uh, after an FOMC meeting, oftentimes presidents are back on airplanes or trains heading, heading back yeah. home. That's part of it. So they may not be in a position to hear it. But you have to understand that during the course of the meeting uh, over the two days, uh, uh, the chair has, as a, as a rule, so to speak, or at least as a habit, practicality, yeah. mm -hmm. would talk a lot about what he or she was going to say in terms of or the opening remarks at the press yeah. conference. You don't always know what the questions well, are going to be, but you kind of know the gist of what message is going to be provided. You know, what, what is the tension in that Eccles room between freshwater and saltwater economics? We toss these phrases around. But if you get Marvin Goodfriend from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or Charles Plosser, or the late, great Alan Meltzer, whoever, if you get guys like you in the room with the saltwater people, what happens? It's brackish. <laughs> it's brackish. It's good. <laughs> or muddy, as the case yeah. may be. No, uh, you know, I think that, uh, obviously, uh, Tom, you know, I've known Marvin for 30 years. Uh -huh. um, he and I share a lot, have a lot in common. We think about uh, monetary policy in similar ways, not always mm -hmm. agreeing, but we're very, very well, close. And I, so I think that uh, right now, uh, many of what you would describe as freshwater economists uh, have been um they're lacking in the FOMC okay let's case. do this let's come back with charles plasser we're going to pick this theme up on freshwater economics this is bloomberg david gurr and tom Keene. a few more minutes uh right now with charles plasser uh who long ago and far away did some really first-rate academics uh professor plasser i want to get back to the fed and the future of the fed but enlighten us on rbc real business cycle theory what is that? Well, Tom, real business cycle theory, uh, I, I actually coined the phrase back in 1981 or 82. I oh, excuse me. I thought it was 1881. Oh. <laughs> well, there are days I feel like it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> At our age, you know, the memory cells begin to fade after a while. But uh, real business cycle theory really is a way of looking at the economy um, that rather than putting – uh, monetary policy at the center of all the things that matter for the economy. And so it says, look, you know, lots of things happen to the economy. There are shocks from all so different sorts of sources. It doesn't all come from monetary policy. It doesn't even all come from fiscal policy. And what Real Business Cycle tried to do was to try to build a, a framework for thinking about how things other than policy uh, play out in an economy, what kind of things change, uh, what their impacts and oftentimes that uh, 
we called it real because it wasn't monetary in mm-hmm. some sense. So we were looking for other sources of fluctuations, if you will, right. because we couldn't understand what happens with policy unless you learn understand what happens without and, policy. And those moving. could f- converse in professor in Euler functions. And I, I will <laughs> I will mention the greatly respected economist Michael Woodward. Uh, is one example of the mathiness of modern economics. They've all been humbled over this financial crisis. Can the leaders of the next Fed be more RBC-like, even if they're not real business cycle economists? Well, I think that even today, among lots of academic macroeconomists who look at things, the real business cycle model still is kind of is, has now mainstream in the sense that it's at the core of lots of models now. So I think that certainly people like Marvin Goodfriend and uh, uh, are uh, deeply steeped in understanding real business cycle models, understanding how they work, what they have to say, yeah. what they don't have to say. So uh, I would, I would uh, certainly hope that the FOMC and the Fed in general, I think we need a little okay. more humility from the Fed. Then if we go to Kidlin and Prescott and the work of Charles Plosser, there's an x-axis as a time function. Mr. Bullard of St. Louis would suggest we should not be slaves to the x-axis and we should look for so-called regimes change. That sort of goes into a real-world analysis, doesn't it? Well, it certainly is trying to. I think a- analyzing regime changes is, is very challenging. <laughs> And determine how you get there, why they're changing, and understanding right. those things. So, um, but uh, uh, Milton Friedman used to used to tell us that um, changes in tastes or preferences is the um, is it the last resort of an economist who doesn't understand what's really happening. Well, that would be me. Excuse me, <laughs> David. Jump in here. Thank you. Did you see that, Ken? Ken Feli, our technical director, saved that. That's a great moment where Charles Plosser really put me in my place. Okay. <laughs> David, save me, please. <laughs> Let me ask you a bit about uh, how much power a person Sorry, has Tom. to shape the, the, the Federal Reserve. So we could have a, a President Taylor. We could have a President Warsh. Uh, given all the cacophony we hear from governors and presidents giving a lot of speeches, to, to my ear at least, ahead of these, these Fed meetings, how much does one person have to shape the direction of the FOMC right now? Well, it's very hard. It's a it's a it's a it's a committee after all, and uh, it functions in a committee, and that's actually a good thing because that means that lots of different views get to be presented. I think it's very important, whether it be presidents or governors, that you have people who are smart enough and knowledgeable enough to present those different views and to force the committee to confront different perspectives and come up with a with a with a policy insight. So it's rarely. It's rarely one person. And in fact, I would prefer it not be the power of one person. That's why you have a committee. Uh, I'm very encouraged. I don't know what the Trump administration's goal is for monetary policy. They haven't said very much about it. I think the most recent names that are being discussed, Marvin Goodfriend and and, uh, Randy Quarles, Mr. Jones, I don't know, um, uh, for me are quite um, uh, reassuring that these are both solid people in their respective fields. very moderate in their views, not extremist one way or another. And so I'm, I'm very encouraged by what I see so far if these two individuals I just mentioned yeah. ultimately get nominated. In the time that we have left with you, linked together from the world of Charles Blosser, <clears throat> interest rate dynamics with the diminution of the balance sheet. <clears throat> there are two different dynamics or two different set of vectors, if you will, of yields up, yields down, first and second derivatives, and then this strange thing, the <clears throat> balance sheet. How do you link the two? together, Professor? 
Oh, I think it's very hard. As I I mentioned earlier, Tom, I'm worried about sort of the interventionist view of the Fed and how its role of manipulating or changing or intervening in different asset prices and classes. And and the balance sheet kind of plays into this. I mean, right now, the Fed is busy trying to raise rates and at the same time claiming it's trying to keep accommodation by having a big balance sheet. Well, which is it? Those are two very different policies. How do we calibrate and think about monetary policy? I'm really hoping that the Fed will will very soon, as I tried to get the Fed to do several years ago, articulate its vision where we go to extract ourselves from all this. Where is policy headed? Are we mm-hmm. heading to one kind of strategy or a different kind of strategy? What role is the balance sheet going to play? And what's going to be the relationship yeah. with setting short-term mm-hmm. rates versus this, this effort to you know, right. buy a bunch of stuff. I got 20 seconds left. Is Kachi Lakota killing it at R- Rochester right now? <laughs> Did you get on that job? I'm sure he's doing just fine. I'm sure he is. <laughs> Professor Kachi Lakota, hopefully listening up at the University of Rochester in the Simon School. Charles Plosser is a former head of the Philadelphia uh, Fed. That was great. David, that Absolutely. was great. That's why it's special on RBC. That was really, really uh, interesting. It is a wonderful time to speak to Stuart Glickman. Why would that be? We've been in a range on oil, and uh, we're at the bottom of the range, and we've stayed there for the last number of days. Stuart, I look at $45.86 a barrel on West Texas Intermediate. Is there any indication we break the range lower, or are you just saying we're range-bound? Uh, good morning, Tom. I, I think we're probably range-bound, but my, my inclination would be if we are going to break out, it's probably going to be a little bit higher from here. Um, the, uh, I, but with that said, I don't expect a major move in crude um, in, in 2017. I think, I think we stay kind of marooned in this, call it $45 yeah. to $55 range for a while. When you see supply headlines come across at Bloomberg, do you really know regional or country or global supply? I mean, is it, is it something that's really countable? Well, there are some countries where it's difficult to estimate production, like China, for example, is notoriously difficult to get, get a handle on. Um, but the International Energy Agency does a fairly good job with their oil market report. And so I think, you know, more so than the absolute numbers, I think, I think they do a fairly good job of looking at the trend lines. And you know, I do think that the markets are, are moving into balance, but it's it's going to take a while. I think this is a longer fuse, not a shorter one. Stuart, what did we learn about uh, OPEC's relevance after this last uh, OPEC meeting, the continuation of that, that production uh, freeze? There was so much speculation going into the first meeting now many months ago uh, mm-hmm. about how relevant the, the cartel, the organization uh, was. Uh, has it reestablished its relevance somewhat? No, I, I, think, I think its relevance is still open to question, uh, David. I think that you know they they've effectively boxed themselves in by by you know assuming that a, a relatively small cut would be enough to bring U.S. shale to its knees and it just hasn't worked out that way obviously um, most of the U.S. oil community onshore has spent the better part of the last two years getting their act together and cutting costs and they've been they're now at a position where they can make money at forty five dollar oil mm. and I think it's going to take more significant cuts from OPEC to really push it a lot higher, um, or else we're looking at, 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 a, at a continuation of this range. 
I want to ask you about the, uh, the the Paris Agreement. Obviously, we're beginning to process what the landscape looks like now that the U.S. has withdrawn or intends to withdraw from from mm-hmm. that uh, that international deal. Do we have a sense of what it's going to mean for the global energy marketplace to not have the U.S. be a party to that deal? Well, I, I think that you know the 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 real import of the Paris deal was, and again, this was this was not a binding treaty, or actually, it wasn't even a treaty to begin with. It was a non-binding accord mm. where. They were talking about what kinds of cuts they would expect to make between 2020 and 2030. I think it takes a little bit of the wind out of the sails for renewable energy. But even if you look at at companies like ExxonMobil, for example, that do 30-year strategic planning ahead, um, renewables are are an increasing piece of that mix. It's just not a dominant piece of that mix. I think oil and natural gas particularly are still going to be major influences on energy consumption. Where's demand dynamics right now? I'm sorry, say again? Where are demand dynamics right now? I mean, we go guest after guest, there seems to be a real distinction between people looking for good, ample demand that can support prices Mm -hmm. versus, oops, it ain't going to be there. Which is it? Um, I'm a little worried about demand. I I, I don't think that, I mean, if you you think about who are the drivers of energy demand, it's mostly emerging markets. And I, I think that, you know, if you look at, Global GDP estimates—they're not. I mean, they're they're up, but they're not. They're not especially bullish. So I, I have a hard time seeing yeah. demand being the the way out of this conundrum for oil. I think it's supply got us into this mess, and I think supply is going to have to get us out. That's a really interesting way to put it. Which geography are you looking at most on on the delta of supply? Is it non-OPEC and particularly Russia? Is it Saudi, Saudi, Saudi? Which is it? Uh, it's definitely non-OPEC. Um, I think I think OPEC has done about as much as they're going to be willing to do. I mean, everyone's talking about how how compliant um, OPEC has been with this last round of cuts, but keep in mind the amount that they actually asked to cut in the first place was just a fraction of what they've cut in previous cuts. Um, Non-OPEC is especially interesting, in particular the U.S. Um, the thing that I'm looking at the most right now is the degree to which the older legacy wells um, are accelerating their decline rates. If those start to catch up with new wells and perhaps overtake them, then I think inventories are going to start to pull in. And if they don't, then I think inventories are going to, grow, are going to rise. I was listening to the uh, the president speak a couple of days ago. He was in Cincinnati talking about infrastructure during what the White House branded uh, as Infrastructure Week. And, and something he brought up, as he has from time to time, uh, is the the building of these pipelines, the Dakota Pipeline, a Keystone mm-hmm. XL Pipeline. Help me understand the, the economic landscape to all of that. Does it make economic sense for those pipelines to be built right now? And if, in fact, we do see them built, how's that going to change the, uh, the, 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 uh, the energy economic landscape? Uh, there's definitely uh, an economic rationale to how a lot of these pipelines built, in particular in the Permian Basin, which is starting to get a little bit um, congested because of the massive amounts of growth that have taken place there. Pipelines are not the only way to get the oil out of the producing areas and into the, consu- into the consumer areas, but you know, your alternatives, like crude by rail, for example, are more expensive. So you know, if crude remains range-bound, uh, the midstream space, where the, where, which, is, which is the companies that actually build and, and maintain these pipelines and operate them, that to me is actually an attractive area to be in. It's one of the only areas, in fact, in energy that, yeah. that uh, I'm, I'm bullish on right now. Stuart, thank you so much for the news flow today. Greatly appreciate having you on. He's a CFRA on oil.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.